let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolaya. Hello, thanks for joining. Today, we'll have a conversation about e-government, a very interesting conference coming now in February, and many more things. So let me introduce you. Our guest today is Rainer Horbe. He is graduated in computer science at the University of Vienna. Working as a software developer for some years, he then specialized on identity and access management starting in 2001. In roles as security and identity architect, he contributed to projects like the Austrian e-government identity federation and European framework projects, EPSOS and mapping. He is chair of the e-government workgroup at Cantara Initiative and contributor to standardization activities in standards developing organizations like ISO SC27. He started the Time Event, an annual identity conference in 2013. Currently, he has the position of a senior manager at KPMG Austria, consulting clients in different sectors on the enterprise IAM topics. Hi, Rainer. Hi, Oscar. Welcome. Very nice talking with you. So it's starting now in um, just Tokyo. Uh, we are uh, middle of winter there, a little bit minus on your side. <laughs> a little bit of sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. It's a good uh, opportunity to start the year with uh, identity management and e-government. Exactly. So let's get started. Let's talk about digital identity. So I would like to hear first from you how you enter to this world of digital identity. So, well, I'm having uh, in 2020 a 40-year professional anniversary. And around uh, half of that time, so almost 20 years ago, after working as mostly as a software engineer, I came into identity and access management. So before that, uh, I was exposed to topics like uh, PKI and uh, the host mainframe identity management tool, RACF, and uh, Lotus Nodes directories, etc. And I obviously, as a developer, had uh, to do authentication, etc. But I would say from today's point of view, I was living in blissful ignorance because I didn't understand identity management. Well, today still, <laughs> if I could cite a uh, Game of Thrones character, Ygritte, uh, she was always saying to Jon Snow, you know nothing. Uh, identity management is uh, such a vast topic that I still think uh, there are many, many things to be learned. So just uh, to make it short, uh, after my first uh, project in the Austrian government, uh, the central residency database. Uh, I had the opportunity to move into a project to federate government-to-government uh, -government, uh, authentication and authorization. And this was a project that I uh, was accompanying for uh, almost 16 years. And uh, the interesting thing about this project was that uh, the central citizen registry was kind of a killer application at that time for establishing a, a government federation, which is today almost 100% uh, pervasive. And uh, 
beyond that, I did the usual things in uh, IAM, uh, some role mining here, two-factor authentication, data clearing jobs. Uh, I've been writing policies. I've been working on sample profiles uh, with open source products. What uh, I find interesting in general that uh, people in my profession, uh, identity and access management experts, usually have a pretty strong background with a commercial product. And uh, this I don't have. So I have been doing projects in various uh, areas uh, without commercial products, so developing from scratch or uh, using open source products up until recently. Mm -hmm. So half of your career so far is dedicated to digital identity. And one of the main things you have been doing in the last years is e-government, as you mentioned. So how you define e-government? So e-government is uh, the digitization of uh, processes between the government and citizens, businesses, other government entities uh, or different uh, levels of government from municipal level to state, national, EU, United Nations, whatever. So there are different uh, concerns in uh, government like uh, social, economic, uh, uh, legal, organizational, ethical, data protection. And this also applies to the subtopic of uh, identity within e-government. Again, here, it's uh, a multi-level problem. With, uh, uh, if you don't get uh, the legal stuff right, uh, you can have uh, implemented lots of technology, you will suffer. Just to cite one example would be the Indian Aadhaar system. So they started 10 years ago implementing it uh, with lots of use cases and, and uh, penetration, but they have been plagued by people who sued the government and the Supreme Court has been uh, deciding uh, that uh, some features are not constitutional, etc. So identity is really not only a legal, not only a technical thing, uh, and uh, not only a commercial thing. And this makes it really interesting. Okay, so what would you say were your main reasons why this this project will not fail, but has this setback? Well, uh, I mean, in the design, most probably, yes. Yeah. Well, maybe just to give you a little background, because uh, uh, <laughs> in the identity world, uh, those people who frequently meet on international conferences, we had a little bit of a kind of Eurocentric view in, in the sense of uh, his, history sciences. So we know quite well what's going on in North America and the, in, in Europe, but we have less experience with uh, India, China, Indonesia, Africa, etc. So bear with me for a second. So Adhar is a, a project uh, to obtain or to assign a number an identifier to each Indian resident being connected with a biometric authentication, so fingerprint and iris scan. And there were a lot of uh, expectations to what that project should deliver. So what was being expected internally and what was being sold to the public uh, obviously was also not 100% uh, 
coherent because there were early notes that uh, this was used to differentiate between citizens and non-citizens in critical regions. Also, officially, it was a residential registry. So this is one of the patterns uh, I found frequently in project that you're targeting different groups and the use cases are quite uh, slightly different. So whether it's a, a residential registry or a citizen is a vast difference. Also, you think 99% or more of the cases, it's identical, but the fringe cases which hurt. Another example, if you have uh, the sex, the gender uh, being male or, or female, and then some people sue you because uh, they say, well, I'm transgender and it's uh, in this country it's constitutional to have that registered. These small things might bite back because uh, it occurs once you have started and already a lot of data in the system and it's operational and, and changes are very, very hard later on. Okay, so back to Adhar, they didn't consider the legal aspects enough. So they didn't have uh, a legal foundation until 2016. So they started the project without uh, a law, which is uh, not only in India, but also in India unconstitutional, because the government must act on the basis of law. And then there is the problem of exclusion. The government must not force, usually, to use digital access methods uh, to government use cases, government processes. Again, they didn't consider that. People sued and the Supreme Court ruled it's not allowed to make uh, the digital access or, or this other number mandatory. So I think the second largest EID project uh, in the world after the Chinese and it's uh, amazingly complex and they are I think still quite well underway so to provide food subsidies and uh, registering SIM cards and they have many many use cases but, uh, but they are really plagued by uh, legal issues by security breaches and, and all these things. So <laughs> it's really interesting to watch such a project in the large scale because all the same things happen on a smaller case in European projects as well. Oh yeah, thanks for sharing. I haven't heard about this. Atar project from India is very interesting. And I mentioned, as you said, the second biggest in the world is has to be a very complex project, of course. Right, uh, right. And tell me in the country, in your country in, in Austria, how is today government in Austria? What do you have there? So Austria is, uh, started uh, in around 2000 uh, to have, uh, actually in the time when I, I, I was involved in the project, to integrate uh, e-government processes and identity management. So this was a very interesting time. The, idea was to use digital signatures as a, a legal basis to identify citizens. And so uh, Austria was one of the first European countries to introduce a citizen card, uh, an ID which was not related uh, to a passport or, or other kind of uh, government ID. It was a separate uh, smart card. And the idea was to to have frequent uh, 
use uh, of this card in many use cases. Everybody would have it and uh, government processes uh, would uh, then be automated. So, and uh, you would have uh, faster, better delivery of government services to the public. And yeah, the idea was to, within five years, to have electronic delivery, electronic single sign-on, and uh, all government, all major government uh, services uh, integrated on the platform. And this was a severe miscalculation. And uh, I think at that time, people just, well, we didn't know better. So there were a number of interesting lessons to be learned. First, there was a little bit of confirmation bias because uh, any government process looked like a use case for identity management. So what could be better than to have a high quality or high assurance authentication and uh, attribute delivery for any use case? And that wasn't the case. <laughs> Actually, the vast majority of government use cases works without electronic authentication quite well. For example, in many countries, uh, filing tax returns on the electronic way is cited as a, a major online activity, which is true. It's not necessary to have a, a high quality assurance because uh, people are anxious of uh, lying to the tax office. Well, maybe the numbers may be optimized in some cases, I don't know. But uh, in general, uh, faking identities, et cetera, is, is just not an issue. So if you just, let's say, file a PDF, some numbers, and after two weeks, you receive a letter with your tax statement, which is not a registered letter, which is just a plain letter. This is good enough. Same is true if you have a speeding ticket. So this kind of uh, transaction, people don't want to authorize, to authenticate, to pay their or to get access to their speeding tickets. They want to, maybe in case they want to complain about it, but in, usually you just pay it and uh, try not to think about it. So there were some uh, studies and they found uh, roughly 90% of uh, the state level uh, so kind of more local use cases, uh, you don't need uh, authentication. Either you have some uh, letter, back office letter or, or some payment or there is no need to care. Yeah, 90% sounds uh, quite high. And so it's interesting that uh, but making the assumption that uh, like strong authentication is always needed. It's, it's something that one could assume, but it's, it's not the case. And on, on the other side, obviously there are use cases where it's very useful to have authentication with all the bells and whistles you expect nowadays, like uh, delegation and single sign-on and uh, uh, various security and adaptive authentication. And, and it's so hard to implement because uh, of the different technology than uh, in uh, 10 years ago, roughly, mobile access became so pervasive that you got a, a complete new second technology platform or technology stack, which is uh, hard again. And so it's pretty messy and uh, you run into the 
economic problem uh, of, of the network effect. So if you don't have uh, enough use cases, uh, people don't use it. If people don't use it, uh, the IT projects uh, don't pick up uh, the uh, authentication services. Uh, so the usual problem. So it, it was really hard to get to that point. To, to sum it up, uh, it took, uh, I would say, 15 years to get into into a region where you can say the majority of uh, of uh, citizen facing and uh, business facing use cases are accessible online with an EID and you have uh, a serious coverage of electronic delivery and uh, solid authentication methods so the good news is we are there it just took uh, much longer <laughs> Wow, sounds like a, like a long journey, a bumpy road. And so now the main uh, authentication method is the ID card. No, well, in uh, because the pickup of the uh, smart card was so difficult, uh, particularly for uh, technical and support reasons. Uh, so I know Estonia did much better in in that case, but. Uh, it just wasn't feasible in Austria. So they implemented uh, within the same type of interfaces uh, uh, mobile MTAN-based uh, authentication alternative and some legal <laughs> tricks to assign the same assurance level to SMS-based authentication as it was with uh, a smart card signature which is difficult to understand for an engineer, but uh, <laughs> lawyers can do miracles. <laughs> and actually, this approach was uh, then copied in quite a number of European countries. And from today's perspective, I think as a provisional measure, probably it was worth the risk because it's just quite uh, simple to implement SMS-based authentication. Now with uh, PSD2 from the European Central Bank uh, banning uh, SMS, uh, more and more, uh, more sophisticated, uh, strong authentication methods uh, will slowly trickle in, into, into the public. Sure. And tell us now about the work you do in Kantara Initiative. You are um, one of the leaders is in the e-government work group. Yes, uh, so Kantara is uh, a professional network and uh, the e-government workgroup used to be fairly technical for standardization. So the SAML, SAML 2.0 e-government profile was used as a, a blueprint in many countries for uh, national SAML profiles uh, uh, like in in Austria as well. And in the meantime, Kantara has uh, moved upwards more to, uh, to the governance side uh, on trust frameworks and assurance, which is a more tricky thing. And the uh, e-government group, uh, working group has changed as well. So it became much smaller and uh, specific on topics. It's, it's kind of a, a resource pool for, for governments who, who do new frameworks, policies. And uh, so people throw 
some papers into it and get some feedback from from people who are interested and in, in also learning from that. And so we the actual work on uh, on technical profiles uh, in Kantara moved to other work groups like the Federation Interoperability Group, which did a recently a very modern uh, sample interoperability and deployment profile uh, with uh, best practices from the collected in the last 10 years uh, woven into the new document. And so again, that has been circulated uh, on, on this mailing list where we have uh, users and lots of uh, vendors and consultants uh, in the group. But in general, it the e-government workgroup is now a fairly small uh, group to uh, for occasional projects and uh, keeping the network and the uh, connections up. And what has been the, the highlights, the best achievements, I would say, for the work group? Yeah, well, historically, what I said, uh, this uh, interoperability thing, uh, if I see the different published uh, uh, government profiles, uh, you see the uh, the templates and the proof profiles from Kantara. Also, I would have wished that the quality would have been better, but with the experience of uh, 2008 and 2009, it just wasn't better to have uh, more specific profiles. And recently, yes, uh, uh, I think uh, it's nice to see that uh, people ask uh, push their profiles to the group, uh, ask questions and, and present their ideas. And then uh, we have uh, useful feedback for them. And, and you see their documents changed. So how uh, these are the best ways that uh, someone in some government in some country can um, benefit or contribute. So they could uh, bring their, you say, the papers or their what they are working and, and, and you contribute giving feedback with the the network that is active. Excellent. And overall, as you are definitely one expert in e-government, uh, you mentioned uh, the project in India. You mentioned also, I asked you about Austria. What other interesting projects about e-government you could, you could mention some experience anywhere in the world? Well, the biggest project uh, is obviously the China's residential identity card. So you see the the history of that card. So they started fairly early. I, I don't remember exactly, but I think in the 80s or 90s, with a very simple card, and uh, which didn't have a lot of security features. And as I understand, it was the main purpose was uh, physical validation of identity, not online. And some 15 years ago, I think the second generation of their card already was for for online verification, but they were they didn't use a standard uh, smart card technology, so kind of a MyFair chip or something like that. And this one is is still in use, and they have been plagued by by counterfeit and, and and fraud of this card. So there are still markets in the internet where you can buy your identity card for a few dollars. And it's interesting to see how they adapt to that. Uh, so the Chinese government decided to completely to move to online. So WeChat is uh, the, the Chinese uh, 
the major online community and they use it for payment for um, and, uh, communication and purchase and many things. So the government will be, I think a, a year ago, they started to, to pilot uh, WeChat as an identity system. And so they are going mobile and, uh, and commercial or somehow commercial uh, or PPP, you would say, <laughs> in the West and replacing this uh, somehow flawed smart card uh, completely with, uh, with an online system. So with a uh, lot of technology and, uh, and fixing problems they had there. For example, they, their previous cards had the problem that they didn't have a separate card number, but say, the citizen ID on the card, so you, you couldn't reissue the card if it, if it was... Uh, if there was an identity theft, the card was stolen. So you couldn't make a difference between a stolen and a reissued card. So well, many interesting things, which I see when I uh, do assessments of uh, enterprise systems. Uh, sometimes you see similar patterns in applications or legacy systems. The interesting thing about uh, e-government is in some sense, usually more diverse and uh, complex is a typically enterprise system because uh, there are governments usually have thousands of uh, processes to very different uh, user groups and uh, a lot of legal obligations, etc. So what works in the government, usually you can say uh, to some extent uh, also works uh, in the private sector. And after the Chinese example, the residence information card was, I think, 1.5 billion users or so. Obviously, the EIDAS, the EU-driven cross-identity government system, uh, EID system, is a very interesting one. An interesting pattern here is, and, and this is uh, kind of an essential difference to the Chinese or even the Indian one, is that the government in, in the West usually doesn't have a, a mandate to uh, structure process, uh, IT processes in, in the private sector. It can do, uh, so regulators for regulators, industries, utilities, and finance, etc., can require certain security things uh, to some extent. But in general, it's very difficult for the government to establish standards. And this is really the difficult point of uh, many e-government systems, including EIDAS, or in particular EIDAS, because it's, uh, EIDAS is an interoperability project for e-government services. And uh, so you will see, um, I would say, with given some time that uh, government services will converge to use EIDAS, and that makes a lot of sense. But uh, the usual citizen has very few government interactions. People work with, uh, with the bank, with their employer, with uh, many systems, but the government is not present in everyday life. And so it's really hard for, for the government to offer a, a system that's, uh, uh, that is very attractive to, for the public. 
So quite interesting in, in the Scandinavian countries, uh, bank ID has been quite successful because it was uh, uh, used from both from for online banking and for the government. And in other countries, uh, this wasn't the case. And the number of transactions uh, done in the e-government systems is uh, dwarfed by what's uh, being done in any any other commercial system where people authenticate. So this is really a problem and uh, say killer applications uh, are really essential to get into the network effect with uh, authentications or identity systems and it's uh, very hard for the e-government. And so China is easy. It's, um, uh, the government has a much uh, longer lever to integrate essential services into their system. But for a variety of uh, reasons, we don't want that, uh, Western societies. Right, yeah, very interesting uh, cases as you're describing and, and what the differences are. Um, tell us now about your what the time, the conference that is coming now in, in February. Yes, so the Trust and Internet Identity Meeting Europe, as it's uh, named, uh, the acronym is TIME, is an annual event since uh, 2013 and actually a brainchild of the IW event. So the IW, the Internet Identity Workshop, that happens two times a year in San Francisco, is an unconference on internet identity. So a lot of uh, technologies uh, was uh, uh, had their bird of feather meetings there, like OAuth and uh, OpenID Connect and, and many other interesting things. And when I talked to Kalia, who is uh, facilitating this conference, uh, if she wanted to bring it to Europe, uh, she said, well, no, she doesn't have the resources, but she will help me to set up something in uh, like that in Vienna, and actually we did that. So the key feature of time is to bring together different communities, like uh, the e-government, but predominantly the higher education and uh, research uh, community, which is running uh, large-scale, very large-scale federations, and they have a lot of uh, technical experience in that area but also private sector companies and banks, etc. So it's uh, pretty much uh, uh, free of any vendor pitches and uh, uh, sales talk. So people meet here to, uh, to talk on subject matter things, on technology and uh, architecture and policy. So people like it. And this is going to happen exactly from... It's in February in the week from... Uh, February 17th to 20th. The first day will be a user group meeting uh, for various uh, research uh, federations and uh, open source uh, uh, user groups. And the second day is a programmed experience. We have a track on open source and another track on identity uh, governance and administration. And then uh, we have two days of unconference. And this is... Uh, in my experience, uh, the most uh, effective things because uh, it allows people to, to bring their own topics and customize their own sessions uh, to get out uh, the knowledge uh, or to share experience about their projects 
and uh, having these kind of formats uh, proved to be very, very effective. So what's the best way to find more about uh, Time Conference? So the easiest way is to go to uh, timeworkshop.eu and there is a uh, website uh, explaining the concept, uh, showing uh, the results of uh, previous conferences and uh, obviously having a link to, to register and uh, get a ticket for the conference. Okay, sounds very good. And it's coming now in February. Uh, thanks for this. And uh, before I, I let you go, I would like to ask you a final tip for anybody to protect their own digital identity. So if you're a developer or a software architect, uh, I ask you to don't implement any local identity management in your applications. Even if you don't have uh, services uh, somewhere, push it to a container like uh, a Tomcat or Apache or, or whatever application server, but don't code it into the application. So whenever later on you need to integrate, change anything, uh, it can be done without touching the application. Because this is really a pain in, in access management uh, later on. Uh, same would be true for any uh, provisioning interface. So maintaining uh, users and their access rights always should be done via an API, never, never locally. If you're an expert on identity management, please uh, reserve some time in your projects to minimize data to do privacy by design. Uh, this really helps uh, to reduce headache later on. And for the majority of users who have different objectives and just don't want to be bothered with technical and, and, other, and legal details of uh, identity and privacy, there are different levels of protection. The basic one is to minimize your data. So if you don't use anything online, move it to an archive. If you don't need it in the archive, delete it. This is uh, the first point how to, you can reduce your exposure. The second one is don't use services which you really don't need. Re re uh, delete your accounts. So again, reduce your attack surface. Then if you have done that, uh, try to use brand name, trusted sources. Uh, so where you authenticate, where you keep your, your data, keep your identities, what you use for for authenticating to other services like you might be using your government or a social uh, account like twitter linkedin google or whatever don't use too many manage those ones carefully and look uh, whom you can trust and finally because this is not good enough and uh, <laughs> the google and etc accounts are not that trustworthy yet they appear. They are on a technical level, but uh, not, not on a policy level. But you re what's really protecting is uh, regulation and law. And so engaging in net politics and uh, democratic processes and transparency is uh, the ultimate help in protecting society. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So thanks a lot for these tips and for this very interesting interview. 
Please let us know, Rainer, how we can find you on the net. What are the best ways? Yes, so there is an uh, imprint uh, on the Time Workshop uh, homepage. And otherwise, uh, my name is so unique that uh, Googling after Rainer Herbe will uh, find you to the right places. <laughs> okay, perfect. We will find you there. <laughs> okay, Rainer, <laughs> it was a pleasure talking with you and all the best. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by UbiSecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time. <laughs>